Well, we're going to cover all of Exodus 24. Interesting title, separation, sacrifice, scripture, and soli deo gloria. Um, here's the big idea. God means, or God intends, his purpose, God means to rule over his rescued people by his word, through sacrifice, for his glory. God means to rule over his rescued people by his word, through sacrifice, for his glory. Uh, maybe you've heard this story before. It's really cute. And I think I've shared it before here. Maybe not. Uh, but it's just a sweet little story. There was a little boy whose sister had a very serious illness. And she desperately needed a blood transfusion. And her, her brother was a match. Her little brother was a match. And so mom and dad, they approach little brother and say, Hey, buddy, we got a, bit at, we got a big ask. Okay, This is a big deal. You know your sister's sick. Uh, she's not doing well. She needs your blood. You can help her. You can help save her if you give her your blood. And the little boy looks down, and you can tell he's thinking hard. Kind of shakes his head. Okay, Mom and Dad, you know I love my sister. I'm going to give her my blood. Well, the day arrives. He's laying down in the hospital bed. They're getting everything ready to draw his blood, and he begins to cry. And, uh, you know, the nurse says, buddy, what's wrong? Well, I love my sister. I know this is the right thing to do, but I'm afraid to die. She said, honey, you're not, you're not going to die. What do you mean? I'm giving her all my blood. <laughs> he thought he was giving his sister all his blood. He was willing to give his life for her. I thought it's a cute story. We need blood to live, right? We need blood to live physically. We also need blood to live spiritually. The blood of another, the blood of Jesus, which really stands for his life given on the cross. Without his blood, without his sacrifice, without his substitution, we could not live spiritually. We need his blood. And he gave it. He gave his life for sinners like us. Here's the structure of Exodus 24, and I hope this is helpful. Verses 1 and 2, and I put this in your handout. We have Moses, the mediator for sinful Israel. We saw this back in chapter 20. Moses as the mediator. And I'll define what that means here shortly. Verses 3 to 8, we have covenant, commitment, and sacrifice. Verses 9 to 11, the relational presence of the Lord. Verses 12 to 14, the gift of God's word. And then verses 15 to 18, the glory of the Lord revealed. I would argue that this is one of the more significant scenes in the book of Exodus. But what has happened up to this point? It's easy when you're going through a book study like this, verse by verse, week in and week out, you kind of lose the forest for the trees. What's been happening in Exodus? All right, get ready for a mega alliteration. You ready for this? We have promise, plagues, Passover, presence, parting of the Red Sea, and provision. That's the book of Exodus. Back in Exodus 3, God promises to rescue his people. He reveals to Moses his plan. I'm going I'm to save them. I'm going to rescue them. I've heard their cries. Here I come. Well, God does that through a series of plagues. 
Through plagues, right, he reveals his glory, not just to Israel, but to the nations. He makes himself known. Through his plagues, he brings judgment upon the false gods of Egypt, and he rescues his people. Of course, the climax is chapter 12 with the Passover, right? God is going to, what, kill the firstborn? And what does he tell Israel? If you sacrifice a lamb without blemish, take the blood, smear it over your doorpost, I will literally pass over your home. I'm not going to bring judgment. You're going to be spared. I'm going to see the blood, a sacrifice, provision has been made, a substitution. That's the Passover. And then we have God's presence. I mean, God shows up in a real way. He leads his people out of slavery, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. And then, of course, we have the parting of the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea. His people go through. The Egyptian army pursues and... They're drowned. And then we have God's provision. After he rescues his people in magnificent fashion, he provides bread from heaven, quail, water, and what else? His word. He gives his word. Amen? God has rescued his people rather dramatically to reveal his glory in this for the purpose of relationship. I once taught at a seminary in Cameroon an entire course on Old Testament survey. We covered the entire Old Testament in a semester, and the big theme that I used was God rescues his people for relationship. Amen? He doesn't just save us and say, okay, pieces, hey, I hope you do well out there. No, he saves us to have a relationship with him. That's why we use the language of adoption. We've been adopted into God's family. So God rescues his people rather dramatically for his glory and for the purpose of relationship, and he enters into a covenant with them, a binding agreement. And we saw this in the ancient world, right? You would have a big, mighty kingdom led by a big, mighty king, and he was called the suzerain. And then you had a smaller king and a smaller kingdom, kind of an outlier kingdom. And oftentimes, these smaller kingdoms would be easy prey. Other nations would attack them, and they would come to the big king, please help us, save us. And the big king would come with his army and wipe out all the threats. And then they would enter into a covenant. The big king would say, okay, we saved you. You were dead. You were dying. We came to your rescue. Now, because of that, you're going to give your allegiance to us. But guess what? Our food is your food. Our water is your water. Our homes are your homes. We are now one. But if you break this covenant... If you go against the promises you've made, wrath, punishment, destruction. And that's what we see in Exodus. God saves his people for a relationship. In our text, they make promises. God, we've heard your word. We're going to do it. But what's the warning? If they reject God, if they disobey God, if they go against their promises, what's God going to do? He's going to punish them. God is not to be trifled with. Amen? So, Six things I see in our passage, okay? Six points. Number one, God's holiness demands a mediator. God's holiness demands a mediator. Verses one and two, then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Arid, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar, Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near. 
and the people shall not come up with him. Strange. This harkens back to Exodus 20, 18 to 21, in Israel's request, the request for a mediator. They want a mediator. What is a mediator? Here's the definition. A mediator is someone who graciously stands in the gap to bring two parties together. Okay? A mediator is someone who graciously stands in the gap to bring two parties together, in our case, a holy God and an unholy people. The mediator's job was to represent the people before God. Exodus 20, 19. And Israel said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. <laughs> so Israel, back in Exodus 20, they saw God's incredible power. They saw God's glory. And they heard the demands of his law. And they trembled. And they were terrified. And they realized rather quickly that they were undone. And they called out for help. They demanded a mediator, a representative. Israel called out for help, and who heard them once again? The Lord. They looked for a helper, someone to go to God on their behalf, someone to speak to the Lord for them. And the Lord provided Moses, a mediator. Now, why the need for a mediator? Why do we need a mediator? Why do we need someone to go to God on our behalf? Why do we need someone to bridge the gap between us and God? Because, like Israel, we are what? We're sinful. Raise your hands if you're a sinner. I beat you to it. All right? We're all sinners. Did you catch the language? Why the separation? The text said, worship from afar. The others shall not come near. And the people shall not come up with Moses. There's this separation. Because God is holy and we are not. We're sinners. But we're not holy. We need a representative. And we need atonement. Radical provision for our sinfulness. Someone to go to God on our behalf. And aren't you thankful that someone has? Someone has gone to the Lord on our behalf. Someone has bridged the gap between a holy God and an unholy people. And yes, that includes all of us. What does this passage teach us about ourselves? What does it teach us about God? Well, God is holy. That's the reason for the separation. That's the reason for the need for a mediator. God is holy. What does the text teach us about ourselves? We're not. We're not holy. Therefore, we need a we need a mediator. One brother writes, this is Tony Merida, we can only draw close to God and be in his presence if we come on his terms in the way he has appointed, through an appointed mediator. Who's ever met one of their heroes? Nobody? That's sad. All right, so... I have a lot of theological heroes. Most of them are dead. And they're all Johns. John Owen, John Bunyan, John Calvin, John Edwards. Goes by Jonathan, right? I'll call him John. But there are some guys today that I really have enjoyed. Uh, they've been an encouragement to me. I've read them. John Piper. <laughs> Another one's Al Mohler. 
I, I love Al Mohler. I, I've read, I think, almost everything he's ever written. I listen to his daily podcast called The Briefing. He's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Years ago, I was at the Shepherds Conference at John MacArthur's church, another John that I like. What is that? All Johns? That's strange. Anyways, I digress. Um, I was at this conference with some friends, and one of the guys I was with, Dave, Dave Parsons, he's a good friend of Al and John, and he goes, hey, I'm running up to Al's hotel room, I'm dropping off some books, and I thought, books, these were old ancient Bibles that Dave just had, he was giving to Al Mohler as gifts. That's pretty cool. He goes, do you want to meet him? And I'm like, yeah, I'd love to meet him. So we go up to his room, knock on the door, Al Mohler, you probably don't even know who that is, it's fine. One of my theological heroes, right? Al Mohler, I think his first name is John. Is it John Al? No, it's just Al. (laughs) He opens the door, one of my heroes, shakes my hand, I I thank him for his faithful ministry, we talk for 30 minutes, I look over in the corner, it's where he uh, records the briefing every day, wherever he goes, stack of newspapers, so cool. Why was I able to do that? Dave. Dave. Everybody say Dave. Dave. Dave literally brought me into the presence of Al. If it weren't for my relationship with Dave, I never would have met Al. I never would have had the privilege of being in Al's presence. It was because I knew Al. Do you know Jesus? Only through relationship with Jesus can we be brought into the presence of God. Amen? It matters who you know. It matters who you know. It really does. So now Jesus is our mediator. Can we agree on that? He is our mediator, the bridge between a holy God and an unholy, sinful people. And as we see in Hebrews, Hebrews 3, 1 to 6, Hebrews 12, 24, Jesus is both the greater Moses and the greater mediator of the new covenant. So Hebrews 12, 24, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. 1 Timothy 2, 5, write these down. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Of course, John 14, 6, this was my text at the funeral yesterday. I did John uh, 14, 1 to 6, but this is the end of that passage. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is establishing his identity as the mediator. Of course, Colossians 3, 1 to 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If you've trusted in Jesus, then where he is, you are also. Amen? Only Jesus can bring us to God. Here's the practice step, and I have one for every point. Look to Jesus. How do we apply? Point number one, look to Jesus. He lived a perfect life died for sinners, and rose again, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Jesus, now think about this, Jesus, the one who enjoys the perfect presence of the Father, is the only one who can join us to the Father, because he is the the mediator. Remember, God is holy, and we are not. 
Therefore, we need a we need a mediator. And Jesus is that mediator, the only one who can bring us to God. So trust in him. Number two, the rest of these points are going to move quickly. Number two, God's rescue demands obedience. If you're taking notes, God's rescue demands obedience. Verses 3 to 7, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord, all the rules. He's, he's read before God's people, God's word, his law, his instruction. And here's, here, here's what we got to pay attention to. And all the people, not some, not a majority, and all the people answered with one voice in unity and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. It's a promise. They didn't say we'll try our best, we'll do it when it's convenient, or if we get around to it, but no, all these things that we've heard from God, we will, in fact, what? We'll do. And then, in verse 7, we have it repeated again. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, they said, the people, once again, twice repeated, all that the Lord has spoken, we will we'll do it. In case you didn't hear us the first time, right? We're going to do it, God. We're going to do it. And then we have the addition in verse 7, and we will be obedient. We're going to do it. We're going to obey. Now, pay attention here, okay? This is important. Recall the order. The order is everything. What does God do first? What's the first thing he does for Israel? He saves them, right? He rescues them by his grace. Then, everybody say then, okay, because you're paying attention. Then he gives them the gift of his word, showing them how to live in right relationship with him, there's the vertical, and right relationship with one another, there's the horizontal. And the people say, we're in, God. Yes, we will obey. Now listen, this is the appropriate response to God's rescue. It's coming under his what? If you've been saved by God, by trusting in Jesus Christ, Sins forgiven forever. Hope of eternal life. No longer an object of God's wrath. Now a child of God. What is the appropriate response? It is to come under his, his word with his, with his people. Amen? This is how the Lord means to rule over his rescued people by his word. It's by his word. His word that is true and good and life-giving. Again, Note what the order is not. It's not, I'll rescue you only if you keep my word. Rather, it's, I've rescued you by grace in order that you will keep my word. Do you see the difference? Are we saved by what we do? No, we're saved by trusting in what he's done, but he saves us to come under his word because he means to rule over us by his, his word, which is what? It's good. It's true. This is a covenant scene. Promises are made. Blood is shed. This was consistent with covenant making. Much like in wedding ceremonies today. When two people stand before each other, they make promises, right? What do they promise, friends? What do they say? I'll be there forever. Did you write your own vows I've heard some weird, what are y'all talking about? Let's just stick with the traditional, come on. But, 
essentially, people are saying, hey, listen, I, I'm, I'm going to be there for you in sickness and in health till death do us part. I'm going to forsake everyone else. I'm yours and you're mine for a lifetime. Amen? And that's what we see here. Promises are made. Israel promises to be faithful to the Lord, to obey his good word. Here's the practice step for point number two. Again, God's rescue demands what? Obedience. Have you been rescued? Have you been rescued by your obedience? Say it in Spanish. No. We've been rescued to obey. Amen? There's a big difference there. And as Christians, we know we have the spirit to obey. And we have the word to obey. And we have the Father's ear to obey. And we have the church family to obey. Here's the practice step. Come under the word of God with the people of God. Read the word. Study the word. Memorize the word. And do that on your own and with, with others in the church. So that you know it and obey it. Are there areas in your own life where you are not obeying the Lord? Ask the Lord in prayer to bring those areas to light so that you can repent. Are we called to give the Lord part of our life? Are we called to compartmentalize? God, you can have this 80% chunk of the pie, but that 20% is mine. No, we're called to come under his word and to love him with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Amen? John 14, 15, this is Clark's special verse. I recite it with him every night at bedtime. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. What does that mean? Well, if you love Jesus, you'll keep his word. Amen? Love for God, our rescuing God, our Savior God, is meant to motivate our obedience. It's not obey to earn, but rather obey in response to rescue, because you love the rescuer. All right, point number three. Oh, okay. If you need a stretch, I can't say go get coffee because that would take too long, but please catch this. Number three, humanity's sinfulness demands a substitute. Oh, we need a substitute. We're all sinners. We need a mediator. Christ is our mediator. We need a substitute. Who's that? Sunday school answer. Jesus. That's a great answer, by the way. Okay? Verses 5 to 8. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered sacrifices, burnt offerings, and peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. A lot of good imagery here. Pretty graphic, bloody. Then he took the book of the covenant. And he read it. He read his word. Okay? The word of God was read. The truth of God was read in the hearing of the people. And they said, we've already seen this, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, we will be what? Obedient. And man, this is crazy. And Moses took the, bud, the blood, and what did he do with it? He threw it on the people. I, no, I'm not going to say anything. Never mind. Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. What is going on here? Now listen. Context. Jesus is king. Context is queen. Okay? We, follow me here. Let's just keep reading. Verses 9 to 11. This is really important. Okay? This really sets the scene. 
Then Moses, what just happened? Sacrifices were made. Blood was spilled. It was sprinkled on the altar. It was actually sprinkled on the people. Okay? Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There were under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Okay. I'm not at a loss for words here, but I want us to really think about this scene. What just happened? They beheld God and they were smote. No. They beheld God and they were dashed to pieces. No. They beheld God and they were obliterated. No. They beheld God and they were turned to dust. That's not what the text says. They ate and drank with him. They fellowshiped with God. How is this possible? Before they saw the Lord, there was what? There was sacrifice. Oh, before they saw the Lord, before they entered into his presence, what had to happen? There was sacrifice. Did you see it? You see the gospel? There it is, clear as day. Before we can be in the presence of God, there must be sacrifice. Only through sacrifice may we be with the Lord. The shedding of blood, the offering of sacrifices, and the sprinkling of blood was necessary. It was necessary for Israel's atonement. They're cleansing from sin. They were sprinkled for the purpose of their sanctification. This was the Lord's way of declaring them clean and set apart. This image, okay, this image and ongoing theme of the shedding of blood, it drives the biblical story forward to that climactic moment where Jesus shed his blood on the cross for sinners like us, because you will never be in God's presence without sacrifice. Now, Danny, I thank you for this. Danny shared a great story with me on Thursday, and I told him I'm going to use that illustration. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, this is so good. Here's the question. What does the blood of Christ do? <clears throat> for our modern ears, it sounds very archaic. I've even been told, don't say that in church. Jesus shed his blood because people aren't going to know. Well, I'm going to say it because the Bible says it. Well, I'll explain it. <clears throat> what does the blood of Christ do? How does it work? Hey, listen. This is the most important question. Okay? So wake up. I, and I'm, I don't see anybody sleeping. I'm just saying, like, get this. Get this. So we love protesters, don't we? No, of course not. There were some political protesters. They're called Stop Oil Protesters. And this is what they did. This was a few weeks ago, right, Danny? I mean, this was recent. They went to a museum where a Van Gogh, a famous Van Gogh, Vincent Van Gogh, piece of art, it was called what? The Sunflowers Painting. It was being housed. And these two women, these Stop Oil Protesters, came in with tomato soup, which I like, with grilled cheese. But Van Gogh paintings don't like tomato soup. So they open these cans of soup, and they approach this Van Gogh, this priceless work of art, and they, I hate to say it, doused the painting. I was waiting for the, oh, 
Nobody. Okay. Was that a nice thing to do? Of course not. Guess what? The painting was fine. It's a miracle! No, listen. You can't see it. You can't see it if you're looking. But covering that painting was a very thin layer of glass protecting it. They tried. They tried to ruin it, make a statement, but guess what? It was protected. If you're covered by the blood, if you've trusted in Jesus, you are forever protected against the wrath of God that we justly deserve. You are forever protected against the accusations of Satan. If you've trusted in Jesus, you're covered. Amen? You're protected. I love John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has life. Amen? Very simple. Whoever does not obey the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. But if you have the Son, if you've trusted in the blood, his sacrifice for sinners, you're now covered, protected. Amen? In order for God's people to be in God's presence, protected against God's wrath, a sacrificial substitute was necessary. Blood had to be shed in place of another. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. Hebrews 9.22 And yet, we know that the blood of animals wasn't able to permanently solve our sin problem. Sacrifices had to be held regularly. They had to be repeated regularly until the once and for all sacrifice of who? Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Only through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross can our sins be taken away forever. Our problem eternally solved and our hearts made forever clean. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Oh, does that get you pumped? I mean, come on now. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Salvation by substitution is God's gracious doing brought to a head in the Son, Jesus Christ. Here's the practice step. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Trust in Him as the once and for all substitution for sinners like you and me. Amen? Come to Jesus. Christ came to us. He died for us. He was raised for us so that we could be right with God. Through his sacrifice and our faith in his sacrifice, we can be brought into his presence. Amen? Number four. Number four. God's presence is the goal of his rescue. Now, this is such a sweet point. And we see it in our text. Why does God rescue us? So that we can have a forever relationship with him. Amen? Friends, I, I think we take this for granted. All of us. 
do we, do we realize the significance, the weightiness of that statement that we sinners, undeserving sinners, get, it's a privilege, get to have a relationship with God, the one who has no beginning and no end, the one who spoke existence into being, the creator of the universe, the savior of our souls, we, through his son, get to have a forever relationship with him. That's why he saved us. Verses 9 to 11. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. Again, there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. They saw him and they ate and they drank. I, I could, this could be a whole sermon for me. This is, a, this is a thing I'm really excited about. A theme in scripture. Meals. Meal. I, I, listen, I, I really enjoy eating. If you know me, you know that's true. But for us, meals are fast food. For us, meals are come and go. Now, hopefully all of us take time throughout the week to sit down with our families around the table because that is a sweet context for discipleship making, amen, for fellowship. But again, in our fast-paced culture, our meals typically are, at least some of them, fast-paced. Would you agree? I'm not saying all of us. It's not a blanket statement. But I'm saying in our culture, it's go, go, go. Meals today don't have quite the significance that they did then. So let's talk about what meals meant then. Again, what we see throughout Scripture is that God rescues his people for relationship. That is the purpose of his rescue. Namely, that we might know him and that for his glory. There was a meal happening in our passage with the Lord. They beheld God and they ate and drank. There was fellowship. Now, what's in a meal? Who likes to eat? Some of you don't. I'm sorry. What's in a meal? Food, yeah. But more than that, it's more than just food, right? A meal is relational. A meal is intimate. It's face to face. It denotes reconciliation and oftentimes celebration. If you're going to have a good celebration and there's no food, you're not doing it right. I'm not coming. Don't invite me. If there's no food, I lost my invitation. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. I'll come. But come on now. You know, Christ did this throughout his ministry. What did he do throughout his ministry? He had a lot of what? He had a lot of meals. Meals were a part of his ministry. The meals are significant. Okay, who's, who's remember the, the goal I had, six books in a year? Who's on that? Who's on track? Okay, if you're needing a new book, this is a great one. It's called A Meal with Jesus by Tim Chester, top ten by far in my, the five or six books I've ever read, right? A meal with Jesus. Oh, it's so good. When Jesus had a meal with individuals, it alluded to the time, the significance of the time, what he had come for. Meals were a context for covenant making. All of this looks ahead to the great meal to come. Aren't you excited that one of the images to describe heaven is a meal? I don't know what you'll be doing. I'll be over there eating with Jesus. I can't wait. Celebrating who he is and what he's done. 
the image of meal is used throughout Scripture to denote God's desire for fellowship with His people. It's used to describe salvation and the resulting fellowship with the Lord. Because if we're saved, what do we now enjoy with God? Fellowship. And one of the primary images used to convey that is a, a meal. So Psalm 23.5, let me give you a few examples. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Meal. Isaiah 25, 6-8. Ooh. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast. Somebody say amen. Come on now. A feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine. Of rich food full of marrow. Of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up. Okay, this is good. He's going to swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Oh, and the Lord God will wipe away every tear from their faces. Luke 15, 21 to 24. This is the parable of the prodigal son. When the son comes home. And the father realizes, that which I thought was dead is alive. What does he call for? We're not going to the movies. We're going to have a, a feast, a celebration. And then probably the most significant is Mark 14, 22 to 25. I wrote a paper on this years ago. It's the Lord's Supper. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And then lastly, Revelation 19.9, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You got your invite? You trusted in Jesus? What are we going to do one day together in eternity forever? We're going to feast. We're going to celebrate who Christ is and what he's done. Amen? Now, here's why I spent so much time here. Why do we gather now? Why do we take the Lord's Supper now? Why are we called to not neglect this gathering? Because this is a preview, a pointer to what's to come. Amen? This is preparation for what's to come. Don't neglect this, because if you neglect this, you're not going to be prepared for that. So here's the practice step. Don't neglect this gathering. The Lord promises to be present with his gathered people. Our gathering every Lord's Day is a foretaste. It's a preview of the eternal celebration to come. And it's coming. Amen? It's coming. Number five. God's rescued people are to be ruled over by his word. Verses 12 to 14. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I've written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. This is the content of our obedience. We are saved to obey God's word, his good and wise word. The Lord gives his rescued people his word. 
by which he means to rule over them. What grace. Again, the Lord doesn't save us and then leave us alone. If that were the case, what? We'd be in trouble. God doesn't leave us to ourselves void of any resources. No, instead he gives us his spirit, his people, and his his word. His word, according to Psalm 119.105, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It shows us how to live in right relationship with God and one another. It's a treasure trove of wisdom. According to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it's from God and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. Here's the practice step. It's Psalm 119, 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Again, read, study, and memorize God's word on your own and with God's people. Number six, last point. God's glory is meant to motivate and empower his people's obedience. It is God's glory. Why does the text end with God's glory? Fire, his power, his majesty on display because it is meant, his glory is meant to both motivate and empower our obedience. Verses 15 to 18, this is the the end of the text. And then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire. Whoa! On top of the mountain, in the sight of the people of Israel, God revealed his glory in the sight of the people. Why? To both motivate and empower their obedience. This final scene is a warning. The Lord is a devouring fire. He's not to be trifled with. Amen? Again, this must be read in context. Alongside, two weeks ago, Exodus 23, 21, and then verses 32 and 33. Exodus 23, 21. Pay careful attention to him. Remember the the Moloch Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. And obey his voice. Do not rebel against him. For he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. God's saying, hey, you better obey me. Don't disobey me because what? You're going to be in big trouble. Exodus 23, 32 to 33, you shall make no covenant with them or their gods, the foreign nations, the pagans. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. The Lord utters forth his warnings and then reveals his glory. The Lord utters forth his warnings and then reveals his what? His glory, his might, his power. The Lord's matchless glory is meant to dwarf our idols and reveal their utter foolishness. Why do we give in to idols? Why do we put things before the Lord? How foolish. God's making a point here. Okay? He warns the people, gives them his word, and then he shows himself, and they're meant, and we're meant to say, Wow! You are awesome, God! And that is the appropriate usage of that word, by the way. God is awesome! Therefore, our idols are not. They're foolish and stupid. I tell my kids not to say that word. But, if you're talking about idols, you can use it. I give you permission, church. 
But God's glory is not merely a negative motivator, right? It's a positive motivator. What we learn in the New Testament is that God's glory is transformative. 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Here's the practice step. Final one. Behold the Son of God in the Word of God and by the Spirit of God be transformed more and more into the image of God. Behold the Son of God in the Word of God and by the Spirit of God be transformed more and more into the image of God. Where do you stand with the Lord? Let's end with this. Where do you stand with God? Let's examine several questions based on our points, our six points from the text. Number one, God's holiness demands a what? A mediator. Here's the first question. I want you to think about this. Have you trusted in Jesus to be your mediator between you an unholy sinner, and a holy and just God? Have you done that? Have you trusted in Jesus to be the only one who can bridge the gap between unholy sinner, you and me, and a holy God? Number two, God's rescue demands what? Obedience. So here's the question. Are you committed to obeying the Lord? Are you more concerned with doing what he says or what you want to do? Is his good will revealed in his good word your highest pursuit, your highest priority? Number three, humanity's sinfulness demands a what? A substitute. Have you looked to Jesus in faith as your sinless substitute, the one who died for you, the only one who can bring you to God? Number four, man, this is... (laughs) I've often said that, woe unto me if I preach the word before it's first done a work in my own heart. And this week, thinking about this point, that God rescues us so that we might enjoy his presence. Come on now. Are you presently enjoying God's presence? Is his presence your greatest goal? Are you able to say with David these words in Psalm 27.4? One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. The Lord saves us for that. Amen? Number five, God's rescued people are to be ruled over by his word. Again, does God's word take priority in your life? Do you regularly read it, study it, and memorize it on your own and with God's people. And number six, God's glory is meant to motivate and empower his people's obedience. Are you in awe of the Lord? Are you regularly beholding the glory of the Son of God in the Word of God to be transformed more and more into the image of God? And of the six things mentioned, where do you need to focus more attention? Anytime I do a funeral, I always want to end with the gospel. Anytime I preach a sermon, I always want to end with the gospel. And I hope 
you saw the gospel in this passage. If you did not, you're blind. I'm not being ugly. I'm serious. If you did not see the gospel and hear the gospel this morning, you need Jesus. God's will, his good and gracious will, is to provide a mediator for us, a substitute for us, so that we might enjoy his presence. Who did that? Who fulfilled that? Who is our mediator par excellence? Who is our perfect substitute par excellence? Who was the one who bridged a gap between us and a holy God? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus lived the life we could not live. We're sinners. He died the death we should have died. And he rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Proof, proof that all his claims are true and that what he did on the cross worked. So come to Jesus. Trust in Jesus for eternal life and a forever relationship with God. There is no other name by which we might be saved. There is no other means by which we sinners may be reconciled to a holy God but Jesus. So trust in Jesus. If you have questions, if you're like, I, I realize I'm a sinner, I realize I need help, I need more understanding, man, talk to me, talk to Aaron, talk to Dave, talk to Paul, we're here for you, talk to whoever brought you. We desire for you to know Jesus because Jesus is king. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we are reminded today in your word that you are the perfect mediator, that you are the perfect substitute, that you are God's good and gracious provision, merciful provision for sinners like us. Jesus, you lived the life we could not live, perfectly obeying the law, and you died the death that we deserve in our place, and you rose again, and you did that because you're good and you're faithful. You did that to save us. And I pray that all of us would, one, trust in that good news, and two, seek to obey you in response to that good news. And three, declare that good news to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.